Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 399 is recorded live March 14th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where, I don't know, maybe a little bit of rest, a little bit of warm weather, and things don't look so bad. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Benter. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, I'm doing very well now, but I was listening to you talk about the weather, and I don't know if you were around, but we had one hell of a hailstorm as it was lightning. And I must have got dumped a good inch of water in my backyard. Well, as I was leaving the plant, uh, people were were saying, oh, it hailed. And I'm just picturing coming out to my vehicle and having a bunch of divots all through it. You know, because they, they always, it's either golf ball or softball hail, they say every time. I'm surprised, not that you said that, that I, well, one, I don't have my other car outside. But uh, I did go out and get one, brought it in to measure it, and it's three quarters in. Well, three quarters of an inch, really? Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so they're not kidding. No, they were not. I would not like to have been out there when it was coming down like cats and dogs. Wow. Yeah, because I could hear it on the, the steel roof of the building, but I didn't realize that we had them that big. Well, uh, it luckily, turned my yard turned my yard totally white for just a few minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, luckily that happened uh, early in the uh, day or season. So that way we don't have problems with, you know, the the fruits and, you know, grapes and stuff. Yeah, and I know that a little south of us, I had tornado warning, so it could have got ugly. Yeah, I was getting all the text messages and warning messages saying how bad the weather was, but I'm so deep in the building. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm in a building in a building in a building, so. Well, temperature-wise, it was... It, relatively present or pleasant compared to what we've been so it's been an interesting day yeah when i got outside after that it was it was still raining a little bit and that was uh maybe five o'clock and then driving south a little bit about 15 minutes later was another 10 15 degrees warmer so it was it's kind of nice sun would come Mm -hmm. out and i was like what is this round thing that looks yellow and bright I'm, i'm not sure what this thing is yeah We'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Derek who showed up and Craig who we got working away. Um, apologize to everybody for missing last week. Uh, we had a robotics competition going on, and the team did pretty well. Out of 40 teams, they uh, were seated ranked third out of uh, all those teams at the end of uh, qualifications, but they couldn't get out of the quarterfinals in the elimination. So didn't didn't quite have everything all dialed in. So uh, we'll have an episode again next week, and then the following week I'll be traveling again. Is it the following week? Maybe it's the week after. I have to look at the calendar. That's coming up soon, before the end of the month, end of March. And March is rapidly running rampant. We're in the <clears> middle right now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the, I, I think time's picking up speed. Mm-hmm. 
And my grandfather always said that, and I don't know if I necessarily believed him, but it's certainly true. The last 10 years seems like two. Well, let's see. This first article that we have up uh, is a, if a fish can pass the mark test, then what are the implications for consciousness and self-awareness of testing in animals? Wow, this is a, this is a deep subject. This one's from um, uh, Plos, uh, biology, 15th <clears throat> anniversary. And, uh, but it's a, it's a really dry read. So you may want to click on, I don't know how much I'm going to get into it, but, uh, wow, they, they went on and on and on, but they're, they're pretty much talking about, uh, a study they did then, aren't they? Where they had, uh, they it was watching. an analysis because we've always talked about how intelligent octopus are, for example how mm-hmm. they can look, figure something out, and get out. But again, they're saying that if you take a child or an animal and put it in front of a mirror, does it consciously realize that that's them, not another another item? And that's what they were identifying here, trying to prove self-recognition, which is supposed to be a, what, a, t- a sign of intelligence, as well as they're not just dumb animals. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking through, and here's here's uh, part of the study. They said fish were marked at night while under anesthesia, and then they swam normally the next morning in the no mirror condition. So what they're doing is they're placing them in front of a mirror and then observing their behavior, and they were believing that they had recognized their own reflection, and they were using this as a way of trying to determine if they were self-aware. And like you said, it's a very long case study with lots of documents and stuff. But actually, you get into it, and it's really interesting. <laughs> but you almost yeah, yeah. But you really have to have it. It's hard to talk about it. What I thought was interesting about it as much as anything else is, one, is the different way they marked them. And since fish don't have arms that they can go back and rub something to say, hey, there's this. They know that fish will go up when they get barnacles or something and rub themselves to get rid of it. And the other aspect they talked about was when they first put it in there, you'd have the the mouth attack to the glass as if it were a uh, – obviously, they didn't think it was themselves, thought it was another animal encroaching in their domain. So they'd mouth it, you know, like trying to bite it, but they can't. Mm -hmm. They went through and talked about that over a period of a week – they no longer did that because it's like, hey, well, they are. They're not doing anything, and it doesn't bother us, so we'll leave them alone. The other part I thought was interesting is for a period of time, the fish would swim normally, and then sometimes they'd get close, turn upside down, swim, look at themselves, and then go back right. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> it's like, are they having fun? And they're just realizing, can this guy follow me? Yeah. And then – Later on, they didn't expert that as part of that. They you could look at the fish, realize that must be me because there's something on my tail fin. And since they can't turn their head to look, looking in the mirror, they'd see it, then they'd go and rub up against something trying to get whatever it was off their tail. Ah, so that does show some type of self awareness, but at what level? It's like you know, when you cut a plant, does it scream? <laughs> that's that's what I look at this and was looking at, you know, desert. But it was interesting how they then compared mammals, uh, which ones are self-aware, like dolphins, elephants, 
uh, apes. So it was quite interesting. And that's what they're trying to do is, is their consciousness and self-awareness. So do fish scream when you catch them, I suppose, is what they're saying. Well, because you recognize yourself in a reflection, is that really self-awareness? I mean, is, is that what they're... Because it, would have, it would have to be that you say, oh, that's me. Isn't that self-awareness? Meaning, whatever it is, I see that, that's me, because I can go up there, you know, fan it, do this, do this up. I'm, I mean, if you asked me, would an animal be able to do that, even a fish? I mean, from having aquarium fish for years, I would say certainly they can do that, that they would, they would be, they could associate that way. But to what depth? I mean, how much cognitive recognition yeah. do they have? Or is it more of just a, a practical standpoint from, uh, you know, it's an extension of not, of being able to see themselves. You know, if, if, if you're a, an animal and you notice that your limb has something on it and you look at it to figure out how to get it off, you eventually associate that. But I guess that would be a little bit, a little bit higher intelligence to do that, but I don't know to what extent, but that's not my area of study. So did they take any final analysis? Were they saying that we should stop eating fish? No, they did not go that far. Okay. It basically came down indeterminate, which Mm -hmm. is probably what you were going to figure. They couldn't really say one way or the other either. Yeah. So whether they scream when you catch them, I don't. Well, I'm, I'm sure they don't want to be caught or killed or whatever, but. They can be awful tasty. Yes. And then this next article was from Shape Magazine, which is an unusual source for talking about uh, scuba articles. But this one, I, the, the title caught me, and it said, The one trick I used to get over my crippling fear of scuba diving from, near exi- from a near-anxiety attack to Zen is how I conquered my fear and became a dive regular. And uh, let's see, the author, Tiffany Lay, said, like many people my age of fear of missing out, I'm constantly being pushed and pulled in an internal dialogue where one voice says, I want to be bold and do the thing. And the other says, I don't want to do the thing. I'm freaking out. Uh, And then she said, this time scuba diving was was the thing causing my inner turmoil. The easy fix might be just to skip it and go snorkeling, paddle boarding, or jet skiing instead. But I've always wanted to learn how scuba dive in Fiji is arguably the best place to do it, appealing to both first-timers and expert divers. Uh, Let's see. Does she? I want to get right to the meat of it. By the way, what was the age of FOMO? What was that for? What did that mean? I missed that. This is one of the problems that you're having with online articles huh? Uh, in general, your authors aren't highly paid. Okay. I figured and, out what it is. Right. It's fear right. of missing out. Yep. Yep. And, and see what's starting to happen is because they're not highly paid. The only people who can afford to take some of these jobs are freelancers under the age of 30 and without large staffs, because you know, everybody, you know, the new media thinks that everybody over, you know, 30 is ancient and uh, they're on their own, but there's no standard. So what you're doing is you're writing to a very niche audience. 
you know, this is part of this segregation of uh, society, you know, where we got to, everybody's got to be in one club or another, you know, all these texting acronyms and shortcuts, you know, uh, what percent of the population in the United States is going to know what that is? Well, I just clicked on it, went to a different thing that actually I had to look real quick and it showed me fear of missing. Yeah. But like you said, if we hadn't had the click, I'd have been going crazy. What? Yeah. Well, and what they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to be a little edgy and hip and inside, but uh, it just wears me out. (laughs) But it makes me wonder though, what is the age of missing? I think they're talking about it's a millennial item or they're just talking about people in in their twenties and thirties. But I don't know. Has, has, is that a new thing? I mean, I've, I don't know. I'm just looking at the medical part here and it says, according to a report by Royal society, of public health in the UK as part of the report polled almost 1500 young adults from the UK from dun, 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 14 to 24. And okay. that's where that fear of missing out from 14 to 24 it said the survey included questions about emotional support anxiety depression loneliness self-identity bullying sleep body image real world relations and fear of missing out the study found that in instagram in particular resulted in the worst body image anxiety and depression scores yeah yeah, I, if this I'm, is true at 14 to 24, my God, what's going to happen when these people hit 40? Right. Well, well, you think about it. Uh, all it is is people, it's, 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 it's an envy feeding frenzy. But you, you know what that linked to, by the way? That no, linked to the medical series that said Instagram is the worst social media platform for your mental health. New survey finds that IG is linked to increased feelings of depression, anxiety, along with body image issues. And this is from, as I mentioned here, the Royal Society of Public Health in the UK as part of their study. Want me to go ahead and finish some of this? This is weird. It yeah, said emotional effects are from Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, YouTube. Survey concluded questions about the emotional sport I mentioned earlier. And then said, whomp. It doesn't take rocket science to figure out why Instagram is the most curated and blatantly filtered of the main social media platforms. I can't even pronounce the words you're going to next use here, but you can Facetune, Lux, I don't know what that is, and filter until you're literally blue in the face or contour a bigger booty, brighter eyes, tap of a button. And there are plenty of posing tricks to make better instas to begin with. All this visual perfection can promote a compare and despair attitude, according to the report. This results when you compare your day-to-day life and makeup-free face with the flawless selfies and luxurious vacations you see on your feet. Exactly. Holy I mean, smoke. Well, j- just just think about it. Say you're the a fortunate person and you've, you know, your, your family helped you get through college. You got your college degree. You're, you're four years in working at, you know, name your corporation. And then, you know, you haven't saved up enough to 
you know, to take a, any real vacation, you're living in a small apartment, and then you see people about your age, either celebrities or your friends, and they only post the best photos showing that that trip that they've gone in the hawk for to go to some desert island or something. I could see where that could uh, erode your self-esteem if you don't have the critical thinking to go and realize that it's not real. Right. It says, on the flip side, all of the social media apps are linked with higher self-esteem, self-identity, community building, and emotional support. So, no, scrolling and swiping isn't 100% evil. There have been plenty of debates on the advantages and downsides of the social media and just how to use it to get the highs without the lows. Pete, after me, put the smartphone in bed, not yours. And then it says, but it's no coincidence that the age of the digital, that the rise of the digital era and the onslaught of look at my fabulous life, social media, is accomplished by a serious increase in mental health issues in young people. In fact, rates of anxiety and depression in young people have risen by a whopping 70% in just the past 25 years. It's not just Instagram having too many social apps. It's not just Instagram. Having too many social apps has been linked with an increased risk for those issues also. In the end, social media is pretty addictive. The chances you're willing to ditch it completely are slim to none. Health effects be damned. If you find yourself feeling down from a marathon scrolling sesh, try switching over to feel-good hashtags like love my shape and other body positive tags, or the oddly satisfying Instagram wormhole, watching those weird videos is actually a lot like a mini vacation or mini medication. Medication? Meditation, not medication. I thought I said medication for a minute. (laughs) Drugs! Okay, sorry about that, but that a, FM a, a little, throw me. A, a little squirrel moment there, but no. Well, this, that, but it's, it's valid, though, because this our article is talking to somebody in that age group. Right. Well, and, and, you know, this was somebody who had, because you know, you've got, you've got the one aspect of it is you're envious of other people. I just hit the microphone. Envious of other people because you think that they're doing more than you can do. And then there's also the anxiety of at some point you've got to start living your life. And I think everybody uh, at some one point or another will, will get to that point because it, we're only on uh, this planet for a certain amount of time and you got to get out there and do something. And I, I was, that's something that, you know, as part of the show I was predicting is that over time, you know, every you're, you're going to decide that virtual is not enough and you're going to want to do real. So I think there's a resurgence coming in dive industry just because people are going to want edgier, uh, more adrenaline, exciting things to do. Yeah. You want to feel the cold. So you can say, yeah, I did that in the freaking ice. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm tough. Yeah. Because I it, can jump out some, of that airplane. Yes. Yeah. yeah Cause it, and, and it's, it's, you, know, you get that uh, adrenaline and it's going to be a different type of adrenaline right now. These, these kids and I see it uh, all the time, especially this this n- newest group of freshmen on the robotics team. Uh, they're just so addicted to this drip of adrenaline that they get from the the 
mobile apps and games. You know, it's like, I, who's, you know, I got to post something. Who's, who's going to like it? Who's going to comment on it? Did the people who I want to comment it, comment on it? Uh, did I level up? Did I shoot that? Whatever, you know, they can, they continue doing all the stuff. So they're, they're used to this, a dopamine drip constantly being pushed into them. Uh, and yeah, they, I have seen withdrawal symptoms. I mean, you want to, you want to just about put a kid in a panic is take his phone away. Uh, it is interesting because a lot of people yeah. now are forgoing even getting their driver's license because they don't see the need. Well, we're, but yeah, I, yeah, I could, I could certainly understand Hell, cars are going to be self-driving in 10 yes. years and, yep. Uh, I can Uber everywhere. I mean, uh, that wasn't an option. I mean, we had dial a ride. That's what I used to do. You know, when I was 14 and 15, if anything, I couldn't ride on my bike a mile or two away, then that was going to be dial a ride. And that, that sucked up about an hour, uh, before and after any place you wanted to go to. Uh, but here, here back to this original article, she's, she's talking about, uh, doing the class cause she wanted to do the tropical diving. She said that, it seemed pretty straightforward. Watch a safety video, get outfitted with scuba gear, learn the basic survival and recovery skills, and then you're golden. Then you're rewarded an opportunity to head out in the open water with a scuba instructor. By the third skill, uh, the supremely uncomfortable exercise of flooding and then clearing your mask of water, my bold and adventurous attitude was wearing thin. Instead of feeling rushed, instead I was feeling rushed and overwhelmed. There was already so much to process, getting used to the sensation of swimming in that heavy gear, breathing with my mouth with a regulator, readjusting my scuba mask so it wouldn't seep in, and feeling bad about stalling the class. In moments like this, when I sense an anxiety attack coming on, the best tool I have for calming myself down is yoga, specifically with a deep belly breath. I inhale slowly through my nose, fully inflating my stomach and chest, and then slowly exhale through my mouth. Since I was wearing a scuba mask, and was underwater, this lifeline was obviously not available. Suddenly, I was overcome with fear, dreaming up a million what-if scenarios. My brain hit the escape button. I promptly scrambled out of the pool, stripped myself of gear, feeling disappointed as I watched everyone else head out for an open-water dive. That evening, I FaceTimed my husband, who reassured me. He told me to stop stressing and stop self-critiquing and stop replaying the day's failure in my head. Before going to sleep, I found a moment of clarity. I remembered a helpful quote from. Uh, Mary Engelbrecht, uh, that I tap into frequency, frequently. If I don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change the way you think about it. It got me through the other challenging moments of my life and eventually got me through this one. I remember the initial reason I wanted to scuba dive. It's fun. The main reason I've participated in any sport activity in my life is because it brings me joy. Why was I letting this, uh, that was supposed to be fun, uh, vacation activity turned me into an anxious wreck. The following day, with a strength and resolved and revised perspective, I practiced some deep inhalations and gave myself positive verbal affirmations. You're okay. You've got this. Take it at your own pace, regardless of what happens. Remember, what's most important is to have fun with it. I decided to give scuba diving another shot. It was incredible. Those seemingly minor mindset tweaks made a world of difference. No longer terrified, I was now thrilled. My instructor was also Phenomenally calm, helpful, and intuitive, reinforced the bottom line through my diving experience. We're here to have fun and soak up the beauty of Fiji. At my own pace, I blazed the skills. And within two hours, I was in the warm blue waters of the bay, careening through the deep. The pride I felt was eclipsed only by the underwater majesty of scuba diving in Fiji. 
Diving itself is pure magic, but also in the light of conquering my anxiety of fears, the experience took me much deeper meaning. Being in the water felt particularly therapeutic and meditative, almost like an extension of my yoga practice. It was a complete contrast from the day before, and since then I've adapted my mindset to conquer everything from daily struggles to challenging my body and mind. Best of all, the serenity of diving means that each time I get out there, the rest of the world and my troubles melt away, even if only for a brief moment, because I decided to stick through the second day in Fiji. Was I wonder how long the class was. Was this one of those like one-day classes, like you start in the morning and you're certified in the afternoon? Well, resort courses are a little bit different than what we normally have up here because they usually are, my understanding, done in a little more of an expeditious manner. Well, because you you could have a like a because you can have a that would be less than certified, right? A little resort course. I I don't know how they really work. I've understood some of those, like the snoopa courses, even are limited to thirty feet. But again, you panic, hold your breath at thirty feet, you're screwed. Yeah, yeah, it's not a good situation. I, but as many classes as I have helped with years ago. They talk about the initial panicky episode. That was usually in kneeling down in the water, getting used to it. Meaning, you know, if you held your breath and come up a foot and a half, you're not going to hurt yourself. You know what I'm saying? And generally, you didn't have to push somebody in six foot of water. I don't remember ever having anybody not go down the drop off past six foot was not totally comfortable with what they did, with Mm -hmm. the exception of. I don't like the mask flooding, but we basically said, when in doubt, keep the mouth, close your eyes, keep the regulator in your mouth, breathe, and come up. So, right. you know, you got a fail mode. If it does do that, you're going to, I can't do nothing else. Fine. Put your hand on your regulator, breathe, come up, breathe, and come up. So I'm, the, I'm sure somebody out there has got some good examples of panicky episodes, but again, for basic scuba in the pool learning, I would hope you would help them get over that aspect of the shallows. My problem would be getting startled with something at 25 feet in the ocean. Even now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where the hell did that shark come from? Just, it's not a shark. That's a chicken of the sea. Yeah, chicken of the sea. Well, that is, it is I think, interesting. I don't know who took the picture of the turtle, but that was not. Yeah. But I'm not sure where I found the scary diving accident. What was the accident? That she was talking about? Yeah. What the scary diving accident taught me about proper planning? Or is that the same thing? That might be a different one. I don't remember. Oh, it's in that in that article. Um, I mean, all that she had was that, that panic attack with a mask, which is not uncommon. No, no. Um. Uh, because it's it's not a natural situation, and a lot. I think that may even be a biological thing that we're just wired to not want water in the face. Because if you think about it, you want to you know if 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 you randomly get water in the in the face and you breathe it in, I mean you can that's not a good thing. So uh, you want to control when you go in the water, and that's what we've trained ourselves as humans in order. We get in the water, we take preparations. When you're breath holding, you know, you're going to uh, 
take a breath from the surface, hold it, go down. So, uh, now we don't have gills, at least not right. yet. Oh, that article I was talking about was in your article here. It says, uh, why was I letting what was supposed to be a fun vacation activity turn into a wreck? Oh, okay. It said related is that. The related aspect is, again, a mask. Cap never fixed the mask on her face, and it was um, bleeding through. Mm-hmm. And then she dorked with it enough that the strap broke and lost the mask. Oh. Now she's got a problem because... One, she cut her hands or something doing something while she was trying to do the mask and had to do a free ascent. But again, free ascent, as long as I got my air, a regulator, I'm good. Mm-hmm. So the mask is probably the biggest one I think people have. Can't clear underwater. Yeah. But again, that's where you, if you have an issue, you stay until you're comfortable, shallows. And hopefully, and she was able to get it together and, Make a good time of it. Glad she did. Yeah, in the chat room, uh, they're they're talking about the resort courses are usually the person require the person to dive with the instructor, and that's what I've heard. You're not a full certification. You're you're basically getting enough of a a course in to you know don't hold your breath, hold my hand, and we're going to go through this. Yep. And a lot of people will do that, never get fully certified, never go diving again. That's they marked it off their uh, bucket list and they're done. Mm-hmm. And at least but, they tried something. Yeah. Well, I, if you I, don't I like, like it, you don't do it. It's that simple. Yeah. And this next one we have here, this one's from undercurrent.org, uh, which is a good resource if you haven't gone and uh, filed this, by the way, that they've got some nice articles in there. Very so, good articles. Yeah, undercurrent. We have been we have been using them for as long as they are have been in existence. Yeah, they they've uh, were they at our world underwater this year? I don't know. I was not there. Ah, uh, okay. Because I I've they've had somebody there. Sometimes I think it's local people who read the magazine and set up a booth on their behalf. You know, like somebody ships up the material. Uh, yeah, and pays for the table. Exactly. And in the, in this article, which is a February 2019 article, it says traditional fins are making a comeback. And this was, uh, do they have who wrote it? I don't think they don't get John, it. Like. John oh, or Ben Davison probably wrote this one. Ben Davison. It says, it says John uh, Batten at the bottom. Right. And Ben, I think, must have helped him, though, because he's always doing this. Yep. But both of so them. So it says, back in the day, all diving fins were made of hard. Their big advantage was that apart from having the fin straps, they seem to last forever. Probably many of you still have some, such as Cooper Pro Jet Fins, Typhoon Surfmasters. Despite their weight penalty when it comes to packing for a trip, they they came lightweight tech polymer fins, some which are very good, others are less effective at their ability to propel a diver through water. Some divers preferred to stay with their traditional fins, while others embraced the new technology and certain Technopolymer fins became almost ambiguous at dive sites. A good example is the Mare's Pina Avinta Quattro fins, which I consider to be a dive guide's fin of choice worldwide. There are others that are equally good. Scuba Pro Sea Wing Nova fins, the fins by Aqualung, Cressy Oceanic, Tusa, and a host of others come to mind. Back in 1998, scuba diving entrepreneur Peter McCarthy thought the fin with a split blade. He sold licenses to use the design, but Apollo and Atomic were the only two manufacturers to take him up on it. 
But after scuba magazines raved about their efficiency, all the other manufacturers then jumped on the idea and made their own split blade fins. Alas, a few of these were effective and divers attempted to head to the strong currents while wearing them made little headway. This gave split fins a bad rap that still reflected day and exchanges on social media. Divers are never short of voicing opinions and some uh, express their opinions that all split fins are no good. Over the last 20 years, Scuba magazines have made science-based comparison tests of the fins and the lightweight technopolymer fins, whether they're Pete McCarthy's split blades or not, have always performed better than traditional hard rubber fins because they tend to have bigger blades. Use several different materials in combination to control the flexo blade and being lighter, take less effort to shift through the water. We should not forget Bob Evans, an American Maverick fin manufacturer, this force fins made entirely from polyurethane. He may have been guilty of experimenting with some seriously off-the-wall prototype designs that were disappointing, but his popular designs had a loyal following for many years. Fins in the style of the original old fins still hang, hang in your garage or making comeback. Traditional hard rubber ones such as Apex RK3, Scuba Pro Jet Fins, Hollis F1s are regaining popularity, especially among technical divers, because they tend to be in the water much longer than recreational divers. They usually wear dry suits, as, thus the need to wear sufficient lead to compensate for the loss of weight of gas they are breathing during the dive, as many as four tanks worth, which leaves them ending up with quite a lot of air in their suits. The air can migrate to the lower legs, and lightweight fins increase the tendency for a dry suit Diver to flip upside down, not good. A way to compensate for this is to wear ankle weights, which negate the lightweight fins advantage of reduced effort needed to move, but technically training agencies, notably GUE, came up with a solution of using heavier fins, hence the resurgence of popularity of the heavy, hard rubber style. But when it comes to packing for a flight to some distant dive destination, weight penalty makes these fins biggest drawback. All the other Fin types out there still in whatever type it makes you happy is the right choice. That said, social media and the forums are full of people asking you about equipment to buy when they start diving. Which would you recommend to them? Do you prefer traditional hard rubber or lightweight technopolymer? Do you have split fins that are effective? We'd like to know. And then, you know, Ben D. Davis at Undercurrent is where they're soliciting the information. Well... My opinion is I have used and always have had the heavy-duty fins. I started with uh, unisuits back in the 70s, and part of the reason was I wanted something heavy on the feet. Use tri-friends fin straps to ensure you didn't get air captured in your booty, and I have used them forever. I do have one pair of lighter weight fins that I do not use in current, and I do not use with a dry suit. So I do have both, but I've had one set of fins with uh, spring clips now for 40 years. Last long time. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I'm I'm currently using the Hollis style of heavy fins with a nice spring clip on the back. I've had the lighter weight ones, which I thought were fine. I never did the split fins. Um, from observing divers with the split fins. Um, I think if you're, and I don't want to say casual as a negative term, but if you're, if you're not, you can, I think you can overkick a split fin. 
and this is my opinion, no scientific information based on it, but, uh, you know, being a bigger guy, you know, I'm, I'm not going to overkick my fins. I'll tire myself out, but and when I say overkick is just flatten them. You know, if you've have a, a fin that's really light, uh, if you kick to the point to where the fin, the fin flips over, you lose a lot of effectiveness. It's the rigidity of the fin and the shape of the fin that helps. Now, split fins, if you don't overkick them, I think probably do have some advantages. But, you know, we're, we're talking microscopic differences. It's it's really what you have confidence with and enjoy and use. But uh, When I'm the, wearing my, my wetsuit during the spring and summer, I've got a light pair of flips are great because they're not, there's no current I'm in, I'm in a lake or a pond mm-hmm. and there's no need for my big fins for that. Yeah. But like if, if I was going to go to a tropical location and I'm not wearing a wetsuit or a dry suit, or if I'm going to do like a, you know, a shorty or something, then there's really no need for the heavy fins. Uh, so a uh, nice article. That was interesting. <clears throat> Yeah, in the uh, chat room, they're saying they've seen several divers go back to Scuba Pro Sea Wings. And then this is an article that was kind of a local one. I was a little bit surprised. Uh, this is from the heraldpalladium.com. It says, back to plow, relatives of World War II veteran to visit the Pacific crash site where he died. The remains of World War II Airman Albert Budd, was it uh, Rye Barkic? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. Uh, came home for burial in St. Joan, December 2017, following a remarkable recovery effort in the South Pacific. The story will come full circle next month when two of his relatives, niece Cindy Gary and her son Adam Gary, traveled to the site where his plane went down in 1944. Adam will dive with the team to the airplane's resting place. It's been a journey, Cindy Gray said, that is of the event surrounding the return of her uncle, the brother of her mother, Teresa. I never in my wildest dreams thought I would go there. They will be traveling the island of Palau. That's where the Bent Prop Project, dedicated to find the remains of missing veterans, discovered the location of three-man Avenger torpedo bomber that went down with her uncle, the radio men, gunner, Aura, Sharninghouse, and pilot J.J. Savage. The plane had dropped its bomb on a Japanese ammunition dump, but was too low, and the explosion tore off the rear of the craft. Rybacek had enlisted at age 18 and was 22 when his plane went down. The remains of Sharninghouse from Ohio were also recovered and returned to his family. The recovery team hopes on this trip to locate the remains of the pilot, who is believed to have been executed by Japanese after swimming to the island. Adam Grace said two men who lived on the island still remember stories their father told them about an American pilot who made his way to shore. Rybercheck's return to St. Joe allowed his only living sibling, Mary Ann Rybercheck, a nun, retired teacher at Lake Michigan Catholic High School, to have him buried with full military honors next to their parents in Resurrection Cemetery. It was at the memorial that Grace began talking about the possibility of traveling to Palau with Pat Sankin, the founder of Bent Prop Project, now called Project Recovery, Scannon found the wreckage after years of searching. Discussion went back and forth, and the Greys weren't sure it would actually happen. But then they suddenly got the okay 
Only one other family has accompanied Project Recovery in a mission. Adam told Sankin that he wanted to make the dive to the crash site, and he was to get 20 dives under his belt. He took his first crash course in the Bahamas, later went on a floor to become certified, eventually totaling, totaling 22 dives. I found a new hobby. I'd love scuba diving, he said. Rather than just going to Turnus, the Gary's will assist the team in any way they can. Adam will help the team search for the pilot in the jungle. The Garys have been getting their shots against malaria and other tropical illnesses, learning what poison plants and snakes to avoid. Cindy Gary said she's excited and nervous about the trip, but it's also a leap for a son who describes himself as a homebody. She admitted to freaking out about her son making the 95-foot deep dive. Adam realized he'd have to keep his emotion in check as they approached the plane. 90% of scuba diving is not freaking out. I understand this is hallowed ground. The fact that he's going to be in a place where his great-uncle's remains rested for so long is very surreal, he said. For a long time, family members didn't talk about Bud and what happened to him. Adam said the whole experience was trying to help Marianne, eight years younger than her brother, open up and share memories of him. If they had, hadn't found him, he would only be a pitcher in a table. The events encouraged family members to dive deeper in history as well. Cindy and Adam visited the USS Intrepid in New York Harbor, the ship that carried Bud's plane, and saw an actual Avenger following the ceremony honoring the fallen airman. The Greys were given a private tour of the ship by historian Matt Fink, and Adam received the insignia of his great-uncle would have worn. Adam, a Lakeshore High School graduate and self-employed electrician living in Baroda, said these experiences have given him an added respect for the military. He's impressed the Navy kept all of Bud's records all these years and have been willing to share them. They never, they truly never forgot, he said. Cindy Gary, a Stevensville resident who works at the Disability Network of Southwest Michigan, said she gained more awareness of the issues of the veterans, she suggests the trip will be one more opportunity to honor the young man who gave his life for his country. His niece said they'll bring pay tribute to him right there. 22 dives. I wonder what the visibility is going to be. Uh, pretty good, looking at the videos. Yeah, so, so it's going to be pretty clear then. Yeah, I looked it up. Yeah. That, so that, that shouldn't be. I'm go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say the. <laughs> Just about, the right, have... just about the right delay to never be able to say anything. <laughs> I was going to say the Bent Prop Project are all volunteers whose common goal is gathering information that can lead to the location, identification, and preparation, bringing back the remains of U.S. service members killed in action, in this case in the Republic of Palu. Uh, the effort began back in 1993 by Dr. Pat Scallion. That's the gentleman who's actually doing this. Uh, all of the members have backgrounds in scuba aviation with particular focus on World War II vintage aircraft and the history of the U.S. and World War II involvement in the Pacific. They said of the roughly 200 U.S. aircraft and their crews shot down in Palo between March 44 and August 45, about half crashed outside the barrier reef, which is several thousand feet deep. So their location and recovery is well beyond the technical capabilities and resources. But there's still nearly 100 planes with crash sites thought to be on some of the Palu's 200 or more islands or in relatively shallow water inside the barrier reef. These are the targets of uh, the bent prop research and field expeditions. Uh, they do use tow tools such as a toad, uh, toad cesium magnetometer and side scan sonars in their search. Now, if you talked about 
uh, Patrick J. Scallon. He's uh, the explorer and the founder of BetProp. He's been involved with the Rex for years and years and years. Um, his work and discoveries in 1993, for example, included locating the Japanese ship that was sunk by George H. Bush, plus many other significant aircraft and ships, and, of course, MIAs in that area. Um, he was born in Kentucky. He's an Army brat of an officer. And like he said, traveled a lot courtesy of the United States Army, lived in many states in Germany, graduated from University of Georgia with his BS in chemistry, his Ph.D. from Berkeley, and then M.D. from Medical College of Georgia in 76 and became board certified in 79. He also spent service as a major. That's what he retired as, I believe, or relieved at, at Letterman Army Institute of Research in San Francisco from 79 to 80. And after his service, instead of joining a private practice, he started a biotech company specializing in therapeutics in the 1980s. And he's currently the chief scientific medical officer. Uh, he lives in San Francisco, and basically he's been going there about once a year. The expeditions are about a month in length. Uh, I think the key item they said about this that most people don't realize is they have no funding from anybody. All the people he works with, including himself, they do this out of their own pocket. So they just fund it. It's like their vacation time off, and then they pay right. for their own ticket. They get there, and then they've Everything. got an agenda that they're of what they're right. going to try and accomplish. And they have been successful. They Of the 21 aircraft found to date, five were found by other people or other organizations. 16 have been found by them. And 10 of these were associated with known or possible MIAs. And the remaining six or 16 rec sites that are remaining, those are the ones that are continuing to, to go through to see if they can find uh, remains. And so he started coming back to Palu in 94, 95, uh, let's see what else he did. They've had select teams since 1996. For example, let's see, their underwater magnetometer is run by a uh, Stanford University professor, a Dr. Greg Kovacs, and his computer expert. So they've got some significant resources that are helping them out there. And like he said, the amazing thing is throughout the nine years to date of all the exploration, self-funded by the individual. You can't, I mean, how do you, how do you not admire that? Oh, yeah. That's amazing to go put that effort and to be that dedication. I mean, yearly since that amount of time. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's obviously something that they feel strongly about and just want to do. But I, I was thinking, you know, here's, here's a diver in our backyard. I mean, that's, you know, we need to recruit him. I think he, we need to get him diving some Lake Michigan when he gets back. Well, that's, that's what I was curious about. I was going to ask uh, Jim if he's heard him or seen him. You know, is he a warm water diver, which it looks like at this particular Yeah. You know, and the, the thing that might be interesting is what if the dive club asked him to come and speak at a meeting? After he got yeah. back, might be interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, you'd have that. Uh, you know, what was his thoughts of the, you know, the, you know, what, what motivated him, which he talk, they talk about here. Right. You know, did he feel like 22 dives is enough for the, the conditions where he ended up? And then how did he like diving in general? It sounds like he's decided it's going to be a hobby. And, uh, 
you know, what, what's better than having a hobby you can do near home. I mean, some oh. people like the trip, the planning. Um, and we've, we've got tons of divers around in the area who never step foot or fin in Lake Michigan. But, uh, if you really enjoy diving, you, you want to get in and dive as much as you can. Right. The bent prop project has actually now had its name changed and it's called project recovery and project recovery seeks to provide recognition, information, and closure families. As a side note, because I kept thinking Palu as part of uh, the territorials we, we watched over during the war. Mm-hmm. And we administratively, actually, we did, as part of the UN Trust from 47 to 87 and gained its full independence in uh, 1994. Mm-hmm. Population is only approximately 18,000. Plan on flying there, you're going to take a little over five hours from San Francisco to Hawaii. From Hawaii to Guam, seven and a half hours. Then you got to catch a hop over Guam to Palu, which is another hour and a half. So you're going to do some traveling that day. Yeah, you're you're not quite to the Philippines by looking at it on a map. It's in the Philippine area, but you go to Guam and then from Guam it's a hop. Yeah, yeah, but it's in the Philippines, like saying Michigan is in Virginia. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> And let's see, what's our our next one we have on the list is from a local news station, News 9, so it's uh, out of Australia. Uh, but the story's talking about a shipwreck of Italian warship sank by a submarine after 77 years. The wreck of the Italian warship sank during World War II has been discovered deep beneath the Mediterranean Sea. More than 370 sailors perished in a cruiser was torpedoed by British submarine HMS Urge in April 1942, underwater remote-controlled robots operated by Italian Navy discovered the wreck at a depth of 1,700 meters, reports the Telegraph. The warship called Giovanni del Bandi Nerve, uh, no, not Nerve, Nur, and I'm sure I am slaughtering it as you're accustomed to by now, was hit by two torpedoes fired by a submarine, most of its 507 crew did not survive. The sinking was part of British attempts to block Italian and German shipping supplying their ground forces in the North African campaign. The ship broke up rapidly and sank, taking with it a majority of the crew. The Italian Navy said in a statement, the ship's remains were discovered 11 nautical miles south of Stramboli near Sicily. The robot mini-submarines or autonomous underwater vehicles were launched from modern-day Italian naval vessel. Only three weeks after the sinking of the World War II Italian cruiser, HMS Urge was destroyed. The loss of its entire crew is believed the British submarine struck a mine off Malta. Ready for a comment? Certainly. Yeah, I looked that up a little bit. Like the first article was incorrect when it said 370, and then you corrected it later when it said most of the 507 crew didn't survive. Uh Yeah, most of them went with the boat. Uh, I looked up the HMS Urge. That was a British U-class submarine that was basically commissioned in 1940. And obviously she was lost in 1942, three weeks after she sank this other boat, which was a light cruiser. Uh, what I thought was also interesting was in April of uh, 29th of 2015, it was reported uh, that someone had found on sonar recordings taken off the coast of Libya that submarine. 
Now, it was not supported by physical evidence, uh, such as photographs or material from the wreck, just the images. The British believe it isn't because they haven't seen any solid proof. But they said, well, if it is a U-boat or if it is a sub, it's probably the German U-boat 205, which they know was sunk in that area. So it still will remain to be seen if that is, in fact, the German U-boat or if it is the British U-boat. And since it's quite deep, it's going to be awkward. Now, from that aspect, I was curious about something. because We've been talking about wrecks in the Mediterranean for a long time. How many people yeah. know, just listening here, how deep the Mediterranean is? Because I always I looked at one article, and there's over 62 different wrecks from the war alone, most of them submarines in the Mediterranean. And I keep thinking, well, you've got the little... Uh, how do you get through it? Well, you got the Straits of Gibraltar. They're only seven, well, almost nine miles across. So it seems like if you put a submarine net across that, you could pretty much stop any submarine traffic. At least I thought so. What I didn't know is the depth in that strait goes between 980 feet, 2,900. Then I got the thing, damn, that's deep. And then I said, well, how deep is the Mediterranean? I never really thought about it. Well, then I went ahead and found out the average depth of the Mediterranean is 4,900 feet. The average depth. And what really shocked me was to find out the deepest recorded point in the Mediterranean is 17,000 feet plus. That's pretty pretty far down. Yeah, it's a um, little bit more than a casual weekend dive. Well, it is, because then I looked up the crush depth of that one boat. The max operating depth was 750. Its maximum crush depth was between 850 and 940. So you'd have to have a anti-submarine net at least 1,000 feet down to uh, have captured. And the aspect, am I going to go in there with a nuke boat? You've got plenty of depth, but I don't think I want to mess around there in the the other reason, I, other item I thought was interesting is I never realized how really big it is. You look at it on a map, but if you go east-west, it's over 2,500 miles. And if you go north-south, it's 500 miles. And then added into that, you've got 22 different countries bordering the Mediterranean, two island countries, and several territories. I thought, that's quite interesting. And then, of course, I had to look it up and take a look and say, okay, what else about it that's quite interesting? Well, I thought it was interesting because we're always talking about invasive species here in Lake Michigan. Well, one of their major items they have and worsening is the impact of invasive species. And I thought, what? They got zebra mussels? And what it is is I looked at items. They talked about pollution, shipping, overfishing, and, of course, tourism. And what they went through is they were talking about when they opened the Suez Canal in 1869, that created the first fresh saltwater passage between the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea, which is saltier. And it served and also higher. So it acted as a what they call a tidal strait that poured the Red Sea water into the Mediterranean. And when they created the Aswan Dam across the Nile River it, in the 60s, it did reduce the input of flow of freshwater and nutrient-rich silt from the Nile into the Mediterranean, which made the conditions more like the Red Sea. Well, now we've got the invasive species because 
all the animals that live there, sea life, are used to really, really salt water. They come down to this not a salt, and it's like, damn, I can breathe good down here. And so they went absolutely nuts. Then the second part they talked about was pollution. And if you look at 22 countries with different requirements or of what they don't put in the water, they were talking about the heavy metals of lead, cadmium, uh, mercury that is being pumped into the Mediterranean. It's frightening. The other item that was extremely significant to me is shipping. In the Mediterranean, they have over 220,000 merchant vessels greater than 100 tons across the Mediterranean Sea each year. And if you want to look that up, that's one-third of the world's sea traffic in that area. Then they talked about the pollution from the propulsion systems, the leaking oil, and the sewage and septic that they overboard not counting what comes from the shore, as a monstrous problem and pollution. The other item was overfishing. They talked about 65% of all the fish stocks in the region are outside the safe biological limits established by the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization. They're also losing their albacore, bluefin tuna, hake, marlin, swordfish, red mullet, and sea brim. Every one of those is threatened to extinction. The only bright feature they talked about was tourism. They said tourism is one of the most important sources of income for many of the 22 Mediterranean Mediterranean countries. And they talked about regardless of the man-made geopolitical conflicts that the harbor coastal nations have, they try very, very, very hard collectively to not extend their conflicts into the coastal areas, because that's where they make their money. They don't want to blow up the tourists. I thought that was quite interesting. The depth of the Mediterranean, uh, they were talking about since that was one of the meccas of transportation modes in the day, that they have, they would figure hundreds of thousands of ships through centuries and centuries and centuries of navigation in the Mediterranean. Yeah. And due to the desert aspects, they were talking about the sand encroachment and silt buildups is why everything is so much buried and why on some of the shallower excavations, they've actually found ship under ship under ship of different hundred years. Sounds like a wonderful place to go hunting. (laughs) It would be. Great ROV territory too, especially at those depths. It would have to be. Yeah, someday. That's another one on my on my list to go and visit when they're not killing each other. Okay, we got this next one is from the drinkbusiness.com, not normally a, a publication known for that's talk about scuba diving, but they're saying they have some World War One wine to be salvaged from a UK shipwreck. Organized by Cooks and Adventures with the aid of some various maritime and archaeological entities. The expedition will survey the wreck further and then attempt to salvage about 50 bottles of potentially worth several million pounds. The ship in question is a British cargo ship sailing from Bordeaux to the UK with a cargo of wine when it was torpedoed by the German U-boat in 1918. Today she lies in 100 meters of water off the Cornish coast, an initial dive by Maritime Exploration Company, Ted 994 Limited. To locate the wreck also revealed her cargo of several hundred bottles of wine and possibly champagne in the spirits. 
the majority of which seem to be intact. Phase 2 of the project will see several days of further mapping and surveying before the salvage work begins. Several of the bottles will be accessed with the Coravan upon recovery to determine their potability, and it will, then it seems likely that several will be sent to the University of Dijon for further testing in the National Maritime Museum of Cornwall, and, Fal- and uh, Falmouth has apparently expressed an interest in housing some of its collection. Regis the Gorgon professor of chemistry and enology and adjunct director of the Institute de la Vin Edu Vin Jaz Gayo. <laughs> I don't even know what I said <laughs> at the university of Burgundy and Dijon. To me, this sounds like a menu. I think I've said 20 things that I eat every day. Um, it's an extremely exciting project, which definitely falls with our expertise and interest in the chemical message brought by some very old samples of wine, spirits, and other beverages as shown for an instance in a recent joint research in the Baltic Champagnes of Professor Philip Schmidt Coplin of Technical University of Munich and Professor Philippe Jardet of University of Reims. There is no doubt the samples extracted from the site will have great historic significance as we are not aware of such wide and age variety of wine, champagne, and brandy being found before in UK waters. This is hugely important for ongoing research in world history as we know it. Cooks and Adventures is also offering one of its clients a chance to, to be there alongside the documentary team, various other experts of the world of wine and archaeology. Okay, I, I've got to back up a minute. It was torpedoed in 1918. It's yeah. 2019 now. It's 100 years. Have we lost so much history that we don't know? what was in existence a hundred years ago from the wines and liqueurs. I don't know. It seems like there should be some record. I mean, all, especially all the, the, the shipping record of what was sent would be the first place I would to tell yeah, me how was, valuable the cargo was. Well, I'm, but I'm just thinking historically, is it, is it really that important to know what, liquors are coming with others all it's going to tell you is that's a shipment it's like if i stop a truck trailer and i go and say this is a bunch of uh flat screen tvs and uh some pepsi and coke what is that really telling me other than that's what was in that vehicle uh yeah i'm 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 puzzled at how they think there's some huge you know, other than being able to sample something, because I don't know how many of these wines are in existence on the surface, but I imagine there's got to be some that you could do do sample as well. So, I would I imagine, imagine a lot's going to depend on how potable they are, if they're drinkable, because we've been covering the last couple of weeks on people making new beers mm-hmm. from recovering drinks that have been down for a long time. This might also provide the same avenue if yeah. they're maybe not potable but maybe there's something they can use to then ferment or or make a wine based on that yeah. so i can see that aspect the aspect where they first started out of millions not sure where that comes from no but uh and the history because it seems like again manifest will tell you what you got i think the quality of the of what they get out is what's going to make a determination of a how much money they could make, and then, of course, the testing, and can I replicate something based on what I can get out of these bottles? 
Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm kind of skeptical. I mean, I it's interesting, but uh, just hundred years doesn't seem to be that significant. I mean, I don't, I don't know. You get you get 150 years or 200 years, you know, maybe a little bit more, but well, 50 bottles potentially worth several million pounds. Oh, I don't. Myron, you'd have to be one hell of a connoisseur. Well, you're probably not going to drink it. You're going to sit on a shelf and just say, I've got, you know, the last example of whatever it is. Well, and it depends on what we, it is. Yeah. Didn't we cover something last week that one of the rarest bottles of wine or liquor sold for a million dollars? Well, I, maybe. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> but you'd have to have a lot of millions of dollars to do that. Well, that and just. That, that shows more about the person who bought it than the one who sold it. Well, it also talks about this is a, a luxury travel company of an adventure travel company. And they're going to actually have people paid to go on this event, obviously not dive out of 300 feet. So one of a kind opportunity to be part of the most significant historical discoveries of the century. And I like the part where it said the rarity of the cargo is unprecedented. And we're waiting with bated breath to dive and see if we can recover the wine. It, this sounds more like a brochure to sell you on the trip than it is on anything practical. <laughs> they say what depth this is? 300 I mean, feet. Might... I thought it was 300 feet. Well, that's pretty That's a deep. That's not. Well, that's not going to be inexpensive. No. 100 meters. It's over 300 feet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're you're at the edge there for most people. Yeah. Well, when you buy your bottle, let me know how it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not me. I may be able to buy a photo of the bottle. Come over and smell the cork. Yeah. Well, that does it for Scuba News. The next one we have here is some potential, call it scuba gear, but how how's this for a boat? Uh, yacht. Is that yachtharbor.com? website that has an article talking about a 39.5 meter tri-deck catamaran the beast being launched they said more than a thousand people went out to watch the catamaran the beach take to the water for the first time and um, manawatu marine boating club in foxton beach on new zealand's north island the 39.5 meter trimer tri-deck catamaran the beast is becoming one of the biggest boats built in the country it doesn't look that big does it uh, looks it looks like a freaking military vessel. Yeah, well, that that it's kind of got a almost a camel pattern on it. Yes, it does. Which, not which is a little odd. Uh, I mean, it's not an effective camel pattern, but yeah, it, yeah. The New Zealand-based builder of motor yachts, fishing boats, commercial ships is responsible for her construction, profab engineering. In building, images of the beast were released in March 2018, showcasing its all-aluminum design, features of naval architecture, exterior site styling by Lomo Ocean. The owner, Michael Hill, New Zealand native, wanted the adventure-seeking superyacht capable of taking on challenging conditions. This extravagant 40-meter-long superyacht could soon be available for the chart at 273 thousand dollars a week in the south pacific through charter company 37 south the beast offers plenty of space on board in the 12 meter beam with a total of interior volume of 493 
gross ton, she also included a 9.3-meter amphibious tender, a 4.5-meter rescue boat, and a Japanese, uh, what was that, Tepanaki-style barbecue. If somebody says that, I would I go, of course, that's what it is. Uh, on the upper deck, the beast comes complete with fishing equipment, kayaks, paddle boards, five cabin. Catamaran can also be used for scuba diving, ferrying crews to oil and gas rigs. It even has remote-operated submarine for investigating underwater sites. This universal catamaran can also be used for scuba diving challenge or investigating underwater with a remote-operated submarine. According to Profab, the Super Catamaran is an impressive cruising range of 5,000 nautical miles. With a speed between 12 and 13 knots, she carries more than 76,000 liters of fuel can go almost anywhere in the world except Antarctica. She does not have reinforced hull plating for navigating in the ice. The owner is planning plenty of cruising around the Southern Hemisphere, and this is quite a big area to explore if you accompanied with up to 10 additional friends and family, as well as 10 crew members, master cabin, and four double cabins, which are convertible to two twins, one twin cabin with a Pullman berths, and a course of three outdoor dining experiences. Power comes from a pair of Caterpillar C32 diesel engines with 715 horsepower, full weights, 480 tons. Before settling in Auckland, the Beast will have a testing of the routine of Foxworthy to Wellington. Unless you're doing shipwreck exploration and diving, you're not going to rent that boat. I'm looking at it. It has no pool. The aft decking is taken up by winches, uh, boats, inflatables. It looks ideal for, like you said, launching that submersible mm-hmm. to rear aft decks that you could just walk into the water off of. This would be wonderful for looking for wrecks. I think it'd be great in Lake Michigan. I'd be, well, if I'm going to be renting a boat for that much, it's going to look like the ones that are below it. The Jedi, the Lucky Me, that looks like a luxury boat with a big swimming pool on the aft on the forward deck. <laughs> This would be one hell of a work boat. I like it. I mean, I'm I'm kind of partial to this uh, catamaran style. I think I think those are smooth, and uh, I like the the cranes in the deck. I I'd certainly, if I had a billion dollars, something like this would be great. <laughs> if you're going to wine and dine and uh, ladies of the evening or otherwise, they're not going to like that boat. You don't think they're going to like that boat? No. It needs a different uh, paint job. You need a different boat. If I'm going to get me a, a yacht, I don't I don't look at that as a yacht. That's like a fishing trawler. It's a nice-looking boat. But are you going to go, you know, down to the Riviera in your fishing boat or your yacht? I'll take a yacht. Thank you. Well, the, you're not taking this to Riviera. I'm, I'm just puzzled <laughs> by that, that pattern, though. That is just an odd pattern. Huh. Now is that front? Is that does that f- fold down? Oh, I I went to the site and started looking at the, how they built it. The uh-huh. front that is in the forward section where the uh, where Between, the anchors come out of. Yeah. What about it? Well, I'm just wondering if that like folded down, like if that was a drive-on platform or something. Does it, it look just, like it? Just a, it's a weird angle I'm looking at here. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, I'm. You know, I oh, I uh, it's hard to tell. Maybe, guess that's the big answer. Maybe. Nah. Well, <laughs> well, there you go. So I guess I didn't impress you. Well, maybe, maybe the next one. 
<sighs> well, that does it for Scuba in the News. I don't think anybody's been getting any diving in lately. Um, well, uh, uh, actually, I do believe Maggie and Bob were diving with the Mantis last week. Does that count if you if you go that far south? <laughs> I, you know, is it below the Mason Dixon line? Is that that that's not diving anymore? Is it? Oh, that's, let's see. We I can't remember who else we have. Just just went down to Key Largo. Uh, uh, it was at the dive meeting. They were telling about their plans for this this week. Oh. So we do have some club members who are where it's sunny, warm, and clear visibility, and fish, and stuff like we don't see a lot of. Yeah, we hope they're safe, that they can tolerate the clear vis and the, the warm water. Yeah. <laughs> I did get a little note from uh, Sass saying, hey, Mac, we got this special deal for you if you want it. Seven-day seven day, uh, <laughs> trip down to Cozumel. Had some people back to our, they had some medical issues, meaning their wife got pregnant and things like that. <laughs> but it's like they sold their, their seats for a thousand bucks for the whole thing. So if you had a thousand bucks and you're ready to travel. How many day trip was it? Seven days. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, it, it seems a little pricey. 500 bucks a head. Well, how many people was it for? Two people. Oh, two people for a thousand bucks. No, that's. No, that's not bad for two. No, it isn't. Well, it, I think the normal was like two grand. Yeah, but there, I if if you hunt around and you're willing to do a little bit of extra work, especially in Mexico, you can find some some pretty decent rates. Well, you weren't but, you weren't at the meeting last month, were you? No, I missed it. I'm sorry. Uh, they were talking about uh, Blackbeard cruises because uh, uh, okay, my mind will get caught up with who I'm talking about here. <sighs> Leroy. Uh, he just got off a of black, or um, Blackbeard cruise. He was talking about the fun he had and the dives, uh, but they were also talking that on that one it was like a Spartan, meaning you're not going to take your wife because everybody's sleeping in double bunks, small area. But the food was decent and the diving was great. And that was in January, and then he had been down another place down there in November diving with the sharks. Talking about the feeding frenzies, sound like he had a heck of a nice last couple. Of years. He's so, been yeah. Getting, some of our he, guys are getting getting wet. Yeah, yeah. He he's been getting some amazing trips in. Yes, he has. And I haven't heard from Richard in a while, so that tells me that he's got to be getting some dives. That or his wife is traveling him around the world again. <laughs> he's good at smuggling some gear somewhere. I suppose. Well, that's good. I'm glad to see somebody's getting in. But we're getting that time of year where we're too far out. I know that in the preserve meeting we're talking about, uh, you know, there's talk about buoys going on wrecks. So, uh, and I want to say we're within a week of my earliest dive on Lake Michigan was, uh, I think, before the 23rd of, of March, about 10 years ago. Uh so there's some there's some potential. You can get out there and get in some water. Oh, yeah. The ice is gone. I mean, we've got Wolf's Open House this weekend, and I'm sure people will be starting to get their boats ready to roll as long as we know it's not going to freeze anymore. Uh, yes, yeah. 13 people put their boat in. we yeah, got the we're... club meeting yep. next week, and then we have uh, the MSRA, Mysteries and uh, – yeah, Mysteries and Histories. The presentation uh, MSRA will be having up there in South Haven or 
yep. more north. That'll be the 23rd. So there is some activities. Even if you're not getting wet, you can see other people getting wet. Yeah, and that's one of those. If you want to make sure, if you want to hit that, you want to get tickets early because they they usually have, have been selling out on that. So. And the parking, get there early so you don't have to park so far away. <laughs> you don't want to have to hoof it. Well, do you, you have uh, any safety tips for this week? Well, I have one item. I, I went ahead and put this in the newsletter. It's uh, Bad Diver and Aquatic Awareness. And this was an article I had been looking up under, it's called divein.com. And they have some really nice articles. And this was on a Bad Diver Awareness aspect. And it came about because of a dive master taking people out on their dive tours. And being a relatively dive master, she was, in this case, a, a lady, not just because. Uh, that when you are representing being a dive master in safety and a company whose objective is to give your clients a good time, do you want to correct them when they start doing items that are not necessarily good for the environment? So oh. from that came about these uh, these items. Number one, always dive careful. And that meant dive careful to protect the fragile aquatic ecosystems. Talked about many organisms are delicate, can be harmed by the bump of a camera, swipe of a fin, gentle touch of a hand. Some aquatic organisms like corals grow slowly, breaking a small piece can destroy decades of growth. So by being careful, you prevent long-term damage to magnificent dive sites. The second was to be aware. Be aware of your body and equipment placement when diving. When you get out there full of this brand new wonderful gear and your experienced diver have thousands of dives and you thump to the bottom, that shows a little bit of something. So keep your gauges, aerosol supplies, your alternates, so they don't drag over the reef, other vital habitats. Control your buoyancy, and we always hear this. Buoyancy control is imperative. Take care not to touch organisms with your body or equipment. And if you do it, you're doing your part to prevent injury to aquatic life every time you dive. Third item they talked about is keep your dive skills sharp. And by that meant continuing education. You can refresh your skills and knowledge with a scuba review, advanced open water course, or specialty project course. And they have them, I think Patty has them called peak performance buoyancy, because that seems to be a big factor in people touching stuff. And when I'm talking about touching stuff, remember that um, thesis I talked about uh, from the lady from Australia? Talked about one of the biggest issues is touching wrecks and touching objects. And most of it is done deliberately and on purpose. And a lot of it is because you don't have chicken. Uh The other one was consider how your interactions affect aquatic life. Avoid touching, feeding, handling, or riding on aquatic life. You're trying to get a good video. You're trying to get a, pic a good picture, but it can stress it. You can interrupt its feeding cycle, mating behavior, or provoke an aggressive behavior in a non-aggressive species. It said, understand, respect, underwater life. You play with the animals. Using them for food for other species can leave a trail of destruction, disrupt the local ecosystem, and rob other divers of the experience of seeing these creatures. So you might not really want to do that. It talked about being an eco-friendly tourist, meaning make informed decisions when selecting the destination. 
When you're there, obey the local laws, regulations, understand the effect your effect will have on the environment. Don't collect souvenirs like corals and shells. Take photos. Seven, respect. Respect underwater cultural heritage. Now, like I, where we're just talking about the aircraft, that is all of that is protected. You've got to go through the government to even do what they're doing. Divers are privileged to access a lot of dive sites that are part of the cultural heritage and maritime history. They also serve as important habitats for fish and other aquatic, you know, uh, animals, a life. So uh, preserve the features and the sites for future generations, obey the laws, dive responsibility, responsibly, and treating reacts with respect. Eight, and this is what we're trying to do around here also, is report. Report environmental disturbances or destruction. As a diver, you are unique to monitor the health of local waters. If you notice unusual depletion of aquatic life, injury to animals, strange substances in the water, report the observations to responsible authorities in your area. Be a role model. Be a role model for other divers, non-divers, when interacting with the environment. As a diver, if you see underwater results of carelessness and results or neglect, and you have the opportunity, set a good example by your own interactions so people can learn from you. People do what they see. They do what they're allowed. And last uh, is to get involved by this. Get involved in local environmental activities and issues. It can greatly affect your corner of the planet. Plenty of opportunities to support healthy aquatic environments and data collection activities like local beach, underwater cleanups. If you're in a saltwater area, coral watch monitoring, supporting environmental legislation issues, attending public hearings on local water resources, conserving water, and making responsible seafood choices. All of those help prevent you from becoming a bad diver and demonstrate good aquatic awareness. Yeah, it's excellent. I like that. And it's all common sense, but until you put it down and you start to look around and you see examples of the other, uh, then you realize maybe we aren't or they aren't. and. You're not that example you should be. Yeah. And the oh. the interesting part was most of the items val- were validated, meaning she wrote notes to some people who posted pictures, and the pictures were indicative of or indicative of a lot of the poor habits where people were hugging fish, hugging eels that normally you no. don't do, but they did it for the photo op. Or they frightened puffer fish so they'd blow up to get a good shot? No. So when you see this befores and after, well, you pretty much know you weren't necessarily uh, being a responsible diver from certain aspects. No. No, that kind of goes back to earlier where we were talking about uh, the Instagram people. And that, that seems to be part of it, trying to get those uh, amazing shots and forcing it. Yeah. And then the, I, I like the part about policing it, you know, reporting it. Be observant. If there's a wreck you dive or a site you dive two or three times a year and you notice it's different, uh, talk about that and raise awareness of what you're seeing and uh, report it to, uh, you know, for, first, if you're diving with a charter, let them know. I wouldn't be surprised if many cases they don't take action for precisely the reason you highlighted in the article, that they are afraid of alienating a customer. Uh, 
but long-term, you need more customers. Yeah. The one I like is invasive species, or you see something doesn't look right. We've been looking for both waterborne invasive species and water life, zebras, quaggas, uh, the new red-spotted uh, excuse me, crayfish. If we see clumps of algae and or mold-looking items growing on the bottom that's yellow, purple, and blue, that's not normal, people. So you might want to try to take that picture with your GoPro, identify where yeah. you saw it, and report it. Uh, and we, there's plenty of now of, of new items and apps that they use with the local universities. They're begging you for that information. Yes. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. There's a lot more of us than there is of them, so they can't keep yes. up on it. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a firm believer in citizen scientists that – you know, we can accomplish a lot more together than the, just a few people going solo. Well, if you're enjoying the program, we would certainly appreciate your support, your five-star reviews. And if you have the means and can do so, head on over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on the Patreon link, and we would certainly appreciate your help, $3 or more. Gets you early access to our show notes, uh, and it supports us and helps us keep going as we enter our 10th season of the program and next episode will be episode 400 400 episodes of doing this it doesn't even seem possible we need a party we do i don't i don't have time to do a party the only way we're gonna have to do a party is you're a party pooper i am that is i am so exhausted I, i was listening to the episode uh which was probably 396. That's how far back I am on my, on my listening. And I was listening to myself thinking I was going in slow motion. I'm just, I'm critiquing myself saying, come on, get it in gear. It just sounded like I was half asleep, which I, which I probably wasn't. I apologize for that. I need to, to get a little bit more energy. Uh, I swear this uh, robotic season is, is killing me. So tired doubled my responsibilities on the team and that is just a lot of work but who's complaining i just need to get some time to go out and do some diving it'll change your perspective oh yeah diving like like that one uh, uh individual in the shape magazine was saying uh, therapeutic which yeah. i certainly believe it is so if you have not gotten your gear serviced what are you waiting for at least in the northern hemisphere we are on the brink of dive season, even in the, some of the colder areas. When you get that nice weekend coming up here and it's sunny and your friends are going diving, you want to make sure you have all your gear serviced and ready to go. So go in there and get to the dive shop and get it going. You may have to wait a little bit, but the sooner in, the sooner it will get out. Do you have anything you want to plug before we hit that time of the show, Mac? Well, other than Wolf's Open House, uh, the MSRA. That gets us through March. Yeah. So it won't be long now. So I, I think I, I've got a twofer. Neither of these are really great, as you will discover in a moment. So we'll, we'll do one, <laughs> and then we'll, then we'll do another one. So are you ready? Ever ready. Okay, this first one's a little bit of a question. It says, what's the difference between a dirty bus stop and a lobster with breast implants? And the answer is one is a crusty bus station and the other is a busty crustacean. <laughs> okay, dokie. 
And the good one is which one? The next one? I, I didn't say it was good. <laughs> I was, I'm just hoping that quantity uh, makes up for quality. Ah. So a man is walking down the street and meets an old friend with only one arm. Where are you off to, says the man. I'm going to change my light bulb. Isn't that difficult with one arm? He says, no, nah, I don't think so. I still got the receipt. Okay, see, that was <laughs> Okay. So they, they, they were both totally bad. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Craig is still here. I forgot to keep watching him.